Hello, and welcome to Talking and Show, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Mimi Lewis in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hey, Tamar. Hi, Mimi. And Zahava Stadler joining us from northern New Jersey. Hi, Zahava. Hey, guys. And um, this month, our first topic is gender and Tahara, and we are very lucky to be speaking with Emily Fishman, who I believe is also joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Is, is that right? Oh, right. I remember I remember there was some uh, buy nothing drama. <laughs> um, <laughs> we could Jamaica Plain, um, Massachusetts. <laughs> so welcome, Emily. We're so happy to have you on the show. So um, we're going to be talking with Emily about gender and Tahara. And for our second topic, we will be it's talking be about here. the stress that comes with so many time-bound observances. But to begin with, we're going to be speaking um, with Emily. So um, before we began uh, researching this topic, I really had not thought at all about the issue of um, gender and how it plays out in Chavar Kadisha and in Tahara. So um, can you just kind of begin by telling us how you got involved with uh, Jewish burial society with the Chavar Kadisha? Yeah. Um, the, the, short, the shortest version of the answer is I don't really know why it spoke to me, but it sort of had always been something I was interested in. Um, the slightly longer version, as I've thought more about it over the last two plus years, is that um, I was raised by two parents, one of whom my mother um, had, by the time I was a very young child, already lost both of her parents and one of her siblings. Um, and she, it was very important to her that I continue to have a relationship with them and that they be active characters in my life. Um, and I think that one of the ways that I can relate to them as people who are, you know, active parts of my world but are dead is by relating to other people who are dead. Hmm. And so what did it look like when you first got involved? How did you get involved? Um, so the Boston community, Hever Kadisha, holds trainings every couple months where they just sort of do a general introduction to Tahara, to the work of the Hever Kadisha. And then at the end of that, people who think that this might be work they're interested in sort of sign up to get worked into the rotation. Um, and I don't know like what the percentage is, but right now I think we have something like 200 active members. And how often would you say that you get a call? Um, it depends. It, it seems like there are busy seasons and quieter seasons. Um, but I'd say I'm over there maybe once every month and a half. Um, the men's side is smaller in our Hever Khadija, and so the men are over there more often. So, um, I'm wondering if you could just sort of walk us through briefly the process of Tahara and maybe also if you could point out at least traditionally where what the role of gender is in this process yeah so let me give you a few minute walkthrough of like the in scare quotes easy case of right like a cisgender woman dies um 
so what happens is the funeral home is called. Um, the funeral home contacts the Hevra Kadisha um, if there's been a Tahara requested. Um, and they say that about 30% of families um, accept, a, accept Tahara involvement from the Hevra Kadisha. Um, and so one of the main things that the Boston community Hever Kadisha is focused on these days is a lot of community outreach and teaching the more liberal congregations about Tahara because pretty much everyone who has heard of it wants Tahara for their loved one. But the moment right after someone dies is like not when you're open to hearing new information. Um, anyway, to go back to the overview, <laughs> uh, slight derailment. Um, the so if a cisgender woman dies, um, the Hevra assembles four to five other women um, to come to the funeral home. We upstairs in the funeral home sort of collect ourselves. People change into their uh, tahara shoes, which are often rain boots. There's a lot of water about to happen. Um, so, like, wearing your nice shoes that you don't want to be soaking wet is not the right thing. Um, and so we go downstairs. So upstairs we sort of decide who's going to fill which buckets of water. Because once you're downstairs, once you're in the room with the mate, the meta, with the, the body of the person, um, there's really supposed to be very minimal talking, if any at all. Um and there, there's things like you can't pass objects over the person's body. So in an effort to not have to ask each other what you're doing or like, can you pass me the whatever, it makes sense to split up the tasks before you get into the room. Um, so from there, when we get into the room, um, we uncover the body. The first thing we do usually is cut off whatever clothes they came in um, and cover them with a clean sheet. Um, once that happens, we say the mechila, which is asking um, forgiveness in advance from the soul of the person if, in case we're going to cause them any distress in spite of our best efforts um, or any disrespect. Um, from there, we do the rechitza, which is, uh, translates to washing and is really just sort of what you think of when you think of giving a person a bath, right? So um, any dirt, you know, any grime that's on them comes off at that point. Any bandages, um, if there's a medically involved uh, tahara, we often have a nurse or a doctor or another medical professional in the room to help us with the tubes. Um, we take off any nail polish. We comb through their hair, right? We're, like, really trying to get them nice and clean. Um, and after that, we... Um, do the tahara itself, which is pouring um, multiple buckets of water in sort of an unending stream um, over the the body of the person. Um, and, and in other places, they actually dunk the body in the mikvah. In our place, we don't have one, so we do this uninterrupted stream of water. Um, and after that, we dry them off. We get them dressed in multiple clothes, um, put them in the coffin, say some more lines of uh, liturgy, 
and close up the coffin and it it doesn't get opened again after that so that's sort of the the final hands that touch them how long does the process take from start to finish um i don't actually really know there's no clock in the room it's sort of this very timeless uh it 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 feels very unglued in time like they're like i'm not uh aware i i think it's probably around 90 minutes if i think about like what time i leave the house and what time i get back to the house it's interesting that the way you describe the rachitza the the washing portion um very much mirrors the way a living person would prepare to go to the mikvah by themselves Right, like a very thorough bath, removing any nail polish, combing out their hair. Um, but there's a sense of um, there should be no separation between this person's body and the water. Right. And, and I think that's not by accident, given that the next thing is either we put you in a mikvah or we sort of bring the mikvah to you by pouring this tons and tons of water. And actually, um, I went to the mikvah myself for the first time um, right before the high holidays this past year because the um, community mikvah here, Mayim Chaim, has a partnership with the Chavar Kedisha where they invite us, the, the members of the Chavar Kedisha, to go immerse before the high holidays. Um, and so for me, it was actually a little bit backwards because I had never been to the mikvah before. As I was doing all of this stuff, I was like, wow, I'm like, I, I'm on the other side of things. Like I'm washing myself. This is so strange, um, which I think traditionally was not the order that you have that association in. So um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what inspired you to pull your thoughts together on specifically gender and this process. Oh, can I talk about gender? <laughs> How long do we have? Um, yeah, so um, in November, I think in November, in the fall of 2018, um, the community Hever Kadisha hosted a sort of mini conference. It was a one-day thing at one of the synagogues nearby, and lots of chevras came from around New England and New York. Um, and there were different workshops about various topics. Um, and the uh, leadership of the Chevra Kadisha, who I'd been sort of in very informal kind of touch-and-go conversations about gender, with them asked if I would be part of a panel sort of presenting um, my thoughts and potential future directions to the assembled crew because um, as they were asking the visiting chevras what they wanted to get out of this conference, one of the things they kept hearing was, we know that gender is becoming a more complex topic in our society and we feel completely unequipped to handle it. Hmm. Um, and so I pulled together a few thoughts for that um, one of the people who runs Kavod Vinichum, which is the sort of nationwide um, body that helps train Hevra Kadishas, um, happened to be there and asked me to write it up as a blog post for them. Um, 
And that sort of got the conversation started. And now we're actually convening a team here in Boston. Um, and there's we have a counterpart that's going in Chicago that we're in conversation with that's really trying to get some actionable best practices out there to be made available for uh, chavras across the, across the country, across the world. Um, understanding that there's no real hard and fast guidelines that are going to come out of this, but more best practices. You talk in your piece about how to handle a mate who is not cisgender, but you also talk about um, the role that can be played by um, non-cisgender folks who are on the Hever Kadisha um, and how to think about the team that they should serve on as well. So I think that's at the first time I read the piece, I was very much focused on what you were saying about the mate um, and how somebody um, might want their identity considered in the team that would prepare their body for burial. Um, but the second time I read it through, I realized that there's, there's also a component on, of the experience that the members of the Heber Kadisha are having in relation to the mate. And I wonder if you could speak to that side of it a little bit, because that's, of course, the side that you're sitting on. Yeah. It's a really important question. This is going to come out in like 5,000 different pieces. Um, one side is that for me, right, I don't identify as trans. I identify as gender nonconforming. Um, and there are not very many, if any, um, women's only spaces that I feel comfortable in. Um, I'm an early childhood educator and people often walk into the room and are like, okay, ladies. And I'm like, right, like must we? Um, but what's different about the Tahara room is that all of the gendering is done before you get there and before you're even contacted, right? So, like, no one calls me and says, like, excuse me, we are assembling a women's team tonight. Are you available? They're like, Mfish, we have a Tahara at seven. Can you be there? Like, yes or no. Um, so that that's one thing is that um, for those of us who do find that we can fit in with one with you know the men's team or the women's team but don't really feel super comfortable like declaring our uh identities over and over again to fit as such um i find that it's actually a much more freeing um space than many other single gender spaces uh so that that's one side um that i come to it with there are trans folks who are Haverim, who are members of the Hever Kadisha, who are, you know, trans men who pass as trans men and don't particularly have any desire for anyone to know that their identity is as a trans man, and they're walking around the community as men, and they serve on men's teams without anyone being any, any particular uh, curiosity or any the wiser to it. Um, and the, the same for women, although, you know, uh, trans women have uh, less passing privilege. Um, the, the question comes, we do have people in our community who are um, trans folks who, for various reasons, um, don't, don't take hormones, don't have uh, medical treatments. Um, aren't interested in passing and um, 
you really want to make sure that the people in the room are there not only to be completely 300% respectful of the mate, but that they're very on board with who else is in the room on the team. Um, and we need to be very fiercely protective of these people. I mean, of course, I feel more protective of the mate because they are more vulnerable. Um, but, you know, given that the whole point of the community Hever Kadisha is for people to be able to serve on a Hever Kadisha who would have known me in life, um, I, I want, you know, all of the people in my community also to be able to take part in this ritual if they so choose and if they're able to. Um, and that includes trans folks who are who want to be chaverim. It's just it's just interesting to hear you speak to that side of it. Um, we, we may have skipped a step because, as I said, that the the first thing I read for was what happens um, when the gender identity of the mate is at issue. Um, but that that it piqued my interest the second time around to to think about the gender identity of the people doing the tahara. Um, but Mimi or Tamar, did you guys have questions on the on the first half of that? Well, I, I was hoping actually um, to read some of your words because there there was a piece that I found really beautiful. Um, you write the affirmation of the body's holiness and ultimate beauty is key to every tahara. In the case of a trans person, someone who has likely spent a lot of life feeling their body to be confusing, abnormal, or not worthy someone who has worked so hard to get the world to reflect back the image they see of themselves, it's truly the greatest kindness we can offer. That greatest kindness being, it sounds like, acknowledging their gender identity in death by having a trans woman prepared for burial by women. Is that, is that what's happening at the Boston So that's... Um... That's our baseline. I mean, so again, to sort of walk through the easiest case, as if there is an easy and straightforward case, but if there is a transgender woman who speaks with her family and or community or the Hever Kedisha or her rabbi or someone in advance of her death and says, I, my preference is to be prepared by a team of women then that's easy for us, right? We know that, we identify which are the women who we really trust with a trans woman's body, right? Because it's not only that you self-identify as someone who's like woke enough to handle a trans body, but like, are you actually there? Um, and, and, and then you're prepared by a women's team and that's the end of the story. Um, but the, the question comes more when we don't know a person's wishes um, and they identify as non-binary or they identify with one of the binary genders. But I can imagine, you know, there's a difference between I walk around in the world and I want to be seen as a woman and I am a woman and also I don't want, like, people who've never handled a trans body... Um, to be with me at my most vulnerable. I don't want this to be anyone's first encounter. Um, at one of the <laughs> you might want to cut this in the final version, but at one of the meetings that we had as sort of the working group of people who are trying to hammer out some best practices around this, we said, 
like maybe what qualifies you to serve on a team even for a binary trans person is if you've either had a trans body or had sex with a trans body right but like i can't this can't be your first encounter with a trans body um it's it's not fair to the mate right I, that's part of what i was thinking about as i was thinking through some of the issues around this is that you know all of this is assuming that the trans person was out as a trans person and i can certainly imagine that there have been and will be cases where someone is not out as trans and then it it does come as a surprise to um the team that's working with them and that that could you know the right most respectful people might not be in the room or even people like might be respectful but just be so surprised and not prepared for what they see that they might not be as you know not treat the situation with as much dignity as you would hope um yeah yes um and it's it's already happened here in Boston and in other places right and there's lots of different reasons why that can be one is as you said the person isn't out um and they could not be out at all to anyone or they could not be out to their family which is where the funeral director is most often getting the information or um you know upsettingly they may be out to their family but the family hasn't uh done whatever work they need to do to understand their loved one's gender and so even though they know that their loved one identified as let's say a transgender man they say no this is my sister um and all of that sort of does lead to these moments to these possible moments where um you're in the tahara room and you're washing a body and it's not the body that you th- that you sort of had in your head um was going to be there um and as as we sit around the table in the working group and think through this that is the moment that sort of terrifies all of us um because everyone around the table either is or deeply loves someone for whom that moment is mortifyingly horrible right that they picture themselves or their loved one on that table and like can't imagine any fate worse than this um and the thing you know obviously we haven't quite finished our recommendations of what's the right thing to do but i think the the final draft will be something like the right thing to do is to you know cover the person up which by the way they're already covered anyway right take a step back from the table take a deep breath remember that everyone who's in the khaver kadisha is already used to dealing with bodies that deviate from what you expected in all kinds of different ways right um you know we sometimes get into the tahara room and you didn't know that this person had an amputation right or you didn't know that they had any number of of uh conditions and and you sort of trust that members of the khaver kadish are really there in order to honor the mate and it's better to do the tahara with the people who are there with the best um and utmost respect 
than to say, oh God, those were the wrong people. Let's leave them here and call a different team, right? That's clearly the worst option. But yeah, I mean, and one of the things that we're talking about, and I don't know if this is interesting to you at all. um, One of the things that we're talking about is how do we talk to the chaverim when, let's say we do know that someone is trans, how do we talk to the chaverim without that being in the category of what we call like difficult taharot, right? So if someone um, died in a car accident, you don't get a text that says, there's a tahara at seven, can you be there? You get a phone call. It's like, listen, we have this tahara. It's going to be difficult. What's going on for you this week? Is there someone going to be home when you get home? Not only do you have time to do this, but like, do you have the capacity to handle this right now? Um, right. The same if it's a young person. Also, if there's an autopsy. Right. Um, and those are sort of what we consider to be difficult taharot. And we don't want gender identity to become a category of something that gets talked about as if it's hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. But we do want to make sure that the right people are in the room. Right. Mm. really interesting actually and uh, you know another area that doesn't at all fit in with what i was just talking about but you know here you go it's the mfish show um is that a lot of the liturgy um recited during the richitza while you're actually doing the like bath style washing um is from song of songs Right. So in addition to it being very binary, it's very embodied. Right. And to tell you the honest truth, I don't know what the men are talking about because I don't even read that page. Right. But the women are talking, you know, about your your teeth and your uh, hair and all this, but also about your breasts. Right. Like, how does that ring to a trans person? Is it yes, you worked so hard to have these breasts or, right, and like we should praise them for what they are and these are your breasts and they should be affirmed as such or is focusing on them really bringing more attention to this aspect of a person's body than they would have wanted? I don't know if, certainly it's difficult, but I don't, it's, I don't know if that has any, greater poignancy than, for instance, saying those same verses um, with a mate who's had a double mastectomy, for instance. There, you can imagine any number of ways, as you were saying, where, where a person's body might be um, different from what the, the liturgical composer was envisioning when they assembled this, uh, when they assembled this, this order of events. Um, sure, although in the case of a double mastectomy, the person did at one time have breasts. And in some way, it's like bringing the fullness of what their body was into the room. I'm not saying that that's like sort of the answer, but that's my, my initial reaction to it is, well, but at one time they were what the liturgical composer had in mind. Um, you know, and it would be interesting to see um, what's written about doing tahara for the various intersex conditions which are recognized by the rabbis. Um, we actually just got word of um, a grant that uh, we now have to 
ask someone, hopefully a trans person, to do some serious thinking about the liturgical aspect of this. Cool. I feel like the main takeaway from this discussion for me is that if you're at all interested in having Tahara done, you should talk to your family about, like, what you want it to look like. Um, If it's, you know, if you're cisgender and you think it's simple, then great but um there's definitely situations where you should make your wishes very clearly known to the people close to you yes and i think that's uh almost always the punchline of any conversation about (laughs) end of life or immediately after life uh in judaism or in secular society which is like please god talk to your people yeah Like, I I get that these are all, right, like, when people ask me, like, so what do you do with your free time? I'm like, well, I ride my bike, I like to cook, I go to the library a lot, and then sometimes I prepare bodies for burial. Like, I get that that's a conversation stopper, um, (laughs) but we all have to get over it. Yeah. And if you need help getting over it, go to your local Hover Kadisha gathering because we talk about death like, you know, like we talk about popcorn, you know. <laughs> it's just like not a big, it's not a big deal. We talk about it as if you talk about anything else, like how was your commute? Yeah. But of course, with never with the specifics of the May team that we've encountered. Um, and then the the other thing I just want to, uh, I would say reiterate, but I'm not sure it's been said yet, is I don't identify as trans. I'm not a spokesperson for this project or for the importance of it. I just happen to be the person you're talking to. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, M. Fish. We really appreciate talking to you and hearing about this important work. A total pleasure. Thank you for... Uh, putting your time and thoughts into it, you know, as you said, it's something that just the more thought goes into it, the better this will go for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And if any of you want to talk more about this, I am super thrilled to chat more with you. Awesome. Yeah. And also if you're not in the Boston area, but you'd want to talk to me about gender diversity in Tahara, the people at the Hever Kadisha know how to find me. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take good care, guys. Thanks very much, Em. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, so for our second segment, we are talking about the time-bound nature of so much of Jewish ritual life. So there are lots of instances in Judaism um, where we have a very specific time frame uh, a baby boy's bris happens on the eighth day. We have to light Hanukkah candles when it's dark out, but not when it's been dark for too long. Um, Shabbat begins at sunset. It ends when three stars are out. So there's a lot of deadlines, a lot of preparation for Jewish observance where we feel like we're working uh, on a countdown clock. It's really stressful. Um, and tomorrow you raised to us the possibility of talking about um, the stress that can come up around time and Jewish ritual. Um, so this is something that's been on my mind recently, actually. So I'm excited to talk about it with you guys. Good. I'm, I'm glad because I feel like it's just always on my mind how stressed I am about time. <laughs> so tell us why it's been um, on your mind recently. 
Well, it's been on my mind recently because, um, as as I shared last month, um, I have a new baby, and the nature of my schedule and the rhythm of my day is very, very different all of a sudden. Um, I also feel like I am very much not in charge of the the rhythm in in my home right now. Um, and so it's very easy for things to get away from me um, or for, for deadlines that might once have been totally manageable um, to, for at least this immediate phase to seem like, who knows if I'll get there. <laughs> um, and the effect of that in a lot of ways um, is that I feel like I'm cutting Jewish corners. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not getting to a morning prayer or I'm not... Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in minute 18 of the 18 minutes that are the last final countdown to Shabbat and like just barely scraping by, um, things like that. And so it is one of the, one of the elements, um, of, of having a baby as a Jewish person that feels, um, most challenging, I think. Um, and so it's something that I'm, I'm definitely thinking about recently. I'm also, uh, about to finish my maternity leave and return to work. And again, thinking about how my, my schedule is about to become different again, aspects will become non-negotiable. Um, and the Jewish things for which I'm accountable only to myself, how do I avoid having them take a backseat to the schedule that's being imposed on me by returning to work? How has it come up for you recently, Tamar? I feel like it's just a perpetual thing for me of feeling like I just, there's not generally enough minutes in the day for me to do all the things that I need to do. And I feel very intensely the the pull of like, I need to do this thing by this time. Um, you know, I would say like, I feel it most regularly around Shabbat. And just feeling like the moment I wake up in the morning on Friday until I light Shabbat candles, there's like a clock ticking. Um, and I'm just kind of trying to beat the clock with all the things that I have to get done. Um, and I feel like it, but it, it happens for me, you know, like we are recording this um, the day before um Tanit Esther so tomorrow night is when Purim begins and when we finish recording I have to go like bake a ton more hamantaschen and then make Mishloch Manot and then put together like the craft that I'm gonna do with my daughter's class at school tomorrow and it's like that stuff you know like making hamantaschen is not obligatory <laughs> but um but it doesn't feel like super optional to me and I can't do it tomorrow during the day. So I got to do it now. Um, and yeah, I'm, I, I just feel like it's, it's less for me that like I am unmoored from time the way that it's easy to become when you have a newborn, just because their needs are not dictated by, the clock or you know the hours <laughs> the hours in Gamara um but I just feel like in general 
the things that need to happen for Jewish ritual are so bound up in timing for me and I really feel feel it intensely yeah but when we were talking about this you were like I don't feel this so I want to <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear more about that I mean okay so I don't feel I think that I don't have the same countdown sense um because like I said when we were talking in preparation I light candles when I'm home on Friday and dinner is ready, Um, not based on the time on the clock. But I think I do understand, I mean, it's not as if Jewish ritual can happen whenever. I mean, if I light the candles at seven o'clock or 530, that's one thing, but I'm, I'm not eating challah on Sunday and I'm not celebrating Purim whenever, you know, I'm making a Purim costume for Purim, not for, I don't know, Shavuot, which would be very funny. Um, (laughs) So, so I do understand, you know, we we are still like operating on the same calendar. I I feel, I sort of feel like we're operating on the same calendar, but different clocks. and uh yeah that that frees up hours and minutes but not not full like days and weeks i think you know even for somebody like me who doesn't feel the the specific time bound obligation there is still you know all of the social stuff around okay but if i'm gonna go to shul that's happening at 6.15, not 7.15. Um, and, you know, if we're gonna make it to this dinner, then we have to have the food made in time to go to the potluck or whatever it is. Um, and it, yeah, it it definitely gets to be a lot, I think, even for, even for me, <laughs> without, without some of the same restrictions. Um, I recently realized that, like, the whole, like, Shabbat comes in at 6.58 or whatever, or my favorite, like, exact timing of something for Judaism is on fast days, I think if you go to com and you, like, look up when does the fast end, it will give you a bunch of different times. So my, let's say the fast ends at, like, 7.42, then it'll be like some people say 742 and some people say if you have an extremely hard time fasting, you can break the fast at 731. <laughs> it's like if you have an extremely hard time fasting and you made it to 731, you can't make it to 742. Like it's it's usually like within 15 minutes. And I'm just like, what is the function of this? Um, but just like all of those exact times. If you think about it. How recently have people had access to a watch or a clock that was near enough that they could reliably do anything at a very specific time? Like if you think 200 years ago, your great, great, great grandparents could never like they could not reliably light candles at 518 like that. 
wasn't possible because they didn't have a clock. <laughs> um, so they could light candles, you know, when they felt like the sun was starting to go down, but there wasn't the like exactitude that we have now. Um, and I, <laughs> I have found myself really feeling like I wish I could go back to that because I do find the precise times to be like, I just feel like they're the sort of Damocles hitting, hanging over my head. Or maybe not, that's not the right metaphor, but I just, I, I feel them very intensely. I think the difference though, that you were talking about um, between things that are obligatory versus things that just don't feel optional um, is important here because so this is something that I may have said a few years, really years back now, maybe it, I think in our first year of episodes when we were talking about like Shabbat atmosphere, um, that um, because um, my husband grew up not keeping Shabbat in the way that we currently keep Shabbat, um, he doesn't have this like driving sense of deadline. Um, and he also doesn't have as strongly inbred a sense of, what is Shabbistic, like what's nice enough, what's ready enough, what's what's appropriate, right? That I have these very like rigid notions of what has to be done. So not only do I have this uh, sense of rising panic as we approach 5, 17 p.m. or whatever, I also feel like by the time we get there, not only do I have to have finished cooking and lighting my candles, I also want it to be clean. I also want to be yeah. wearing my nice clothes. I also, these things that I could theoretically, like I could tidy up after Shabbat begins. There's no rules about that. I could change into my Shabbat clothes. I mean, but I have a sense that it's not as nice. And so there's a way in which my sense of the best way to do something is ramping up the stress that I have about it. Um, and... This, you know, this could be something where maybe I could just be a little more forgiving of myself. Um, but it's definitely something where I don't want to, not just because I want it to be nice when Shabbat starts, but also because if I do all those things and then I light candles and it's done, I feel this like wash of, you know, serenity like that that Shabbos feeling that I don't have if I technically made it but now I need to like go run around tidy up finish setting the table change my clothes like then it doesn't feel like Shabbos in in the good way yeah. with that relief yeah well I mean I think that is one question about the the stress and relief uh cycle is that for some people, I'm not saying for, for you guys or for me, but for some people, like the stress, the amount of stress feeds into the amount of relief that you get. And you sort of get in, in some ways addicted to that, like that build up and let down or the, the release that, that it can bring. Um, and maybe it's worth it. Maybe the stress is worth the, worse, worth the relief. What do you think, Tamar? I don't think I'm addicted to it. I would like to get rid of it. <laughs> I don't know how. Um, I, you know, like, I, I totally agree with everything Zahava said. Like, it's like, if you have really completed everything by the time you 
light Shabbat candles or do whatever other thing it is that like has to be done at a certain time. Um, then when you light the candles and the thing starts, you're like, there is just this sense of release of like, oh my God, now I'm done doing all the things like for any hug, even if there's like obligations that come with it, like the hard work comes before. And then like once you're in the holiday or the observance, you're like doing the ritual, but it's not work in the same way as the like cooking and cleaning and whatever is. Um, so I feel like that, that release is really, it, it is, it's just like, it feels incredible. Um, and, but I don't like, if I don't do it, I'm sad it didn't happen, but it's not like, oh, I wish that I had like panicked more. It's like, there was not more time and that sucks, but it is what it is. However, I have been thinking a lot about how much of this I think is really gendered because I feel like for me, it's so much about honestly cooking and cleaning, which are not like my partner does a lot of both of those things. And like definitely like last Shabbat, he did almost all of the cooking and I did very little. Um sidebar I made a cake last Thursday night and then Friday morning the dog yeah, ate it, it. <laughs> oh no <laughs> so I had to come home early to make another cake for it was so sad um, so, keep out of reach of canine yeah no and it was like totally my own fault like I was like oh this is in a place where the dog can get it I have to remember to cover it and then I forgot Anyways, so even the preparation that I had done then was undone by the dog and I had to come do it again. Um, but I I feel like the things that cause me the most stress leading up to a, a holiday are typically cooking and cleaning. Sometimes there's like other things. Like one year we were like putting up our sukkah until like 25 minutes before Sukkot. That was pretty stressful. Um, but most of the time it's cooking and cleaning. And those are things where it's like, even if someone else is doing a lot of them, if a man is doing a lot of those things with you, you like women are socialized to care so much more about this stuff and to be judged more on it. And so I feel just generally more stress around cooking and cleaning than I think my partner does. And so I think as a result of that, he feels way less stress around like the Shabbat or Chag countdown clock than I do, because for him, those things are just like less of a big deal. And also like, if you think back to kind of like traditional gender roles, like Jewish a, a, a Jewish woman living in, you know, Krakow 150 years ago or something, she was going to be doing the cooking and cleaning and things that needed to end when Shabbat began, but her husband was not. Like, the things, he just had to, like, not be at work. <laughs> um, Can I just give my favorite little, so one of my favorite little Talmudic phrases um, is, 
occasionally there'll be some story about like rabbis are sitting around debating something or having a meal or something. That they looked around and suddenly they, oh, it's Shabbos. Like we missed that. It was Shabbos. It just happened to us while we were sitting here. The day got <laughs> sanctified while we weren't looking. And it's just like, how did you miss that that was coming? That would not happen to a woman. <laughs> that would not have happened to any of their wives. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's so stereotypically male that it would be like, how could I have foreseen that Shabbat would happen while I was sitting here? And it's like, what? <laughs> like, I know you don't have a wristwatch, but you might have, like, know what day of the week it is. Like, that seems knowable. Well, it's interesting. I, I found myself thinking, like, I wonder if what we should do is try to raise our sons with this sense of, like, you know, cooking and cleaning for Shabbat and what makes something Shabbistic and like, you know, really trying to uphold standards of Shabbat. But in some ways, like, I don't want to raise any gendered <laughs> child with that stress. <laughs> like, why can't we all sort of be like, yeah, okay, we do the cooking and the cleaning and we do what we can and we don't kill ourselves leading up to it. I think in my family, while it is true that growing up, my my mother did much more of the housework preparation for Shabbat than my father did, that by the time Shabbos was getting close, everybody was feeling it. Um, And even now, um, if you, if, if like the grown up kids are visiting my parents for Shabbos, the first thing that'll happen when you walk in the door is you'll get asked, hey, do you need to shower still? Do you still need to shower? Like... (laughs) My husband jokes that, like, when we get to my parents' house, there should just be a big banner that says, welcome, get in the shower. <laughs> Sorry. Welcome, get in the shower. <laughs> because, listen, there's a deadline and everybody needs to use it. So That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah. I guess I, I don't know if I feel like the answer is, make everyone care as much as I care or make everyone care as little as my partner cares. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to go back to Mar to the question about, you know, what happened before clocks, because it seems to me this is pure observation that people are inclined to, oh, it, it's Saturday night. We're not sure exactly what time Havdalah is. Let's just look outside for three stars. Like, we, you know, we can be sort of lenient and flexible about that, which I understand is also halachically based, that you can be more flexible about ending Shabbat later. But I wonder if how it would feel to wait for when it seems like the sun is setting or has set. Um, rather than being beholden to org or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I will say that I I do sometimes just be like, I, I have to finish this thing, and I think it's going to happen in the 18 minutes, but if it doesn't, like, that's when it's going to end. So I have allowed myself more leniency um, as I get further from the Orthodox day school that I went to. Um but, but yeah, I think right now we are 
living in a Jewish world that is actually very closely tied to these specific timings. And it's hard to build a culture of, well, I mean, it's not that there's no culture that's doing that. Obviously there is, but I think, um, in observant Jewish communities, I think people take the times really seriously. And I don't think that's bad. Although I did find myself thinking like, wait a minute, like if for like a thousand, over a thousand years, people were bringing in Shabbat, like sometime between when they got home, like sometime around when it started to get dark and nobody was like being like, I guess we can't have dessert because the dog ate our cake and we can't have make another one before you know like that wasn't how there just there just wasn't the same timer to be like well why do I have to live this way now um I wouldn't rule out the possibility I mean look this is obviously I this is not something I'm not a historian of of this or of anything (laughs) Um, but I, I think it is just as plausible that people we're accustomed to erring with wider margins, meaning being more careful rather than more lenient. Um, That, you know, the second the bottom of the sun starts to slip below the horizon, you assume you're out of time or whatever it is. Um, In the same way that fundamentally, right, Shabbat should be 24 hours long, but because there's a dispute as to whether the day sort of turns over at sunset or at truly dark nightfall, we err on the side of caution on both ends and start Shabbat at sunset, but don't end until it's truly dark. We give ourselves that fundamental margin of error because of halachic uncertainty. And now we can be precise about the beginning and end times of those uncertainties. But I would assume the inclination would be towards erring on the side of caution with whatever uncertainty existed. But, you know, I mean, we've, we've made this very much about Shabbat and holidays, which I totally understand because I also feel like that's the strongest deadline. But the notion of time-bound ritual, I think um, there, there are two other elements that it, that it calls for me. One is the notion of, like, missing the window. So not necessarily a start time and an end time, but the, like, I can no longer say that prayer I can no longer perform that thing because I missed my opportunity, that it yeah. only existed. The mitzvah only exists in this space. Um, and so I've just missed out on that possibility. Um, like to use like a really sort of strongly basic biblical example, right? If you don't blow your shofar on Rosh Hashanah and then you blow it on the third day of the month instead of then like you've missed the window. You are not doing the thing anymore. Um, and that's not something that I think we feel like deadline pressure about, but it's something where the timing creates a sense of urgency and also a sense of importance. Um, and in kind of a related way, you know, we mentioned at the beginning that like a bris happens on the eighth day, but in the world of people trying to construct a parallel thing for baby girls, Um, one of the things that comes up is, should we try and standardize a time? Like, would this seem more important and legitimate and anchored in tradition if we could figure out like a time to peg this to? Should we also do it on the eighth day? What about on the seventh? What about on the 14th? Maybe there's a biblical reason that, that there's a reason to 
choose this day or that day. And there seems to be a strong impulse from a lot of people to try and find a day and non-negotiably stick to that day because that's what makes something important and legitimate. If it's too flexible, then it's not really important, right? Otherwise, you, you, like, you're clearly just not taking it seriously, um, which I don't know that, that I necessarily agree with that. I think you can be investing something with seriousness and importance even if there's not a single non-negotiable time for it. Um, but it definitely does lend something that air of definiteness. Yeah. I have a friend who grew up very from, and his wife was pregnant with a boy, and his parents were really stressed about the fact that they didn't know when the bris was going to be. Like, they were like, well, ca- like, should she have a C-section and then we'll, like, know when the bris is? And he was like, no, we're not going to plan a C-section so you guys can know when the bris is. Like, that's not how... <laughs> c-sections or brisses work uh, <laughs> um but it was funny because it's not people who are like unfamiliar with the concept or something it's just that like sometimes it seems fine until you are up against the like oh i'm just gonna like i don't have control as to when this clock begins and it's just gonna happen whenever it happens and that's like really <laughs> stressful um it was just like funny to me to hear people who like this is not new to them but they when they were up against it they suddenly were like how are we going to handle this so it's like uh, that's that's kind of what's great about a bris is like you don't you know it it could be on Yom Kippur like you're you just have it when you have it I remember um, explaining to one of my first bosses that I was going to be gone this was early on in my my time at the company that I was gonna I I needed to go to this bris to my my nephew's bris and she was sort of like well you know you're still in this probation period like you don't really have time off and a Jewish co-worker just pulled her aside and said you don't miss the bris (laughs) like and that's the thing about the time boundedness of it is that it it does mean you just don't miss it right um or you do, and that really sucks because, like you said, Sahava, you've missed your window. You're, you're not going to get to be there and do it. You know, in light of our first segment, this has me thinking also that one of the other things that are very one of the one of the other very time defined things in Judaism is mourning, um, and that there's a very specific cycle of what happens between death and burial and then from burial until seven days after and then 30 days and then a year and that those things have meaning um but in the way it's the opposite of a deadline meaning it you you ease your way out through this prescribed process um which i'm sure is not helpful for everyone but but i think for many people it provides a structure that focuses a time that could be very flailing and indefinite. Um, And in the same way time can invest something with importance, it it can also provide a a structure when you really need the structure. Right. Yeah. I mean, the clock, there is a similar clock after somebody dies to when hopefully you bury them. And that I think people feel the same, like sort of, panic around getting there and making it in time 
um, for a funeral or for a burial. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have ideas about um, how to manage the stress of the ticking clock better, please let us know because I need help. <laughs> I think it is possible that the theme of both this month's episode and last month's episode is Tamar needs to give herself a bit of a break. <laughs> Vacation. Guys, <laughs> nice, surprise. That's also what I talked about in therapy today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of taking a break, let's do some endorsements, shall we? Mimi, would you like to begin? Yes. I have three small food-related endorsements. Um, the first one that I want to endorse, this this could be good for people who are strapped for time, um, is Michael Solomonov's, Mike Solomonov's um, five-minute hummus. Um, it's a really quick just like delicious hummus recipe. I have it in a cookbook called Israeli Soul, but I found it um, online from the New York Times and I'll link to it. Uh, basically, there it's like simple ingredients and a good food processor and you're going to have a good hummus. Yeah. Um, Crucially, the, crazy amount of tahina. Yeah, guess what? It's a creamy hummus. <laughs> um uh, the second thing that I want to endorse, um, I don't know if folks saw this, but Joan Nathan this year uh, published a savory hamantashen recipe. This is caramelized onion and poppy seed hamantashen. Um, mm. I really hope that somebody at my community, McGilla Reading, has made this uh, um this hamantashen because it looks pretty good. Though I've seen some back and forth in the Facebook group about where to get your hexured feta. So hopefully that means that somebody's trying to make this hamantashen for me to eat. Can I just say that the it intersection is. of that endorsement and what you said earlier about how like you don't eat challah on a Tuesday reminds me, or I don't remember exactly quite what you said, but that reminds me yeah. of like several years back, the New York Times, you know how the New York Times is like weirdly obsessed with Jews. So the New yes. York Times, um, posted a Joan Nathan recipe, said, in honor of Hanukkah, we're posting Joan Nathan's challah recipe. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's like, nobody makes challah for Hanukkah. Especially, it was like the first night of Hanukkah was a Tuesday. And they're like, here's a challah recipe. <laughs> nope. Fail. <laughs> Missed it there, you guys. Anyway. Um, and my third endorsement it's a I'm sure this podcast will go out a little bit late, but next year, if anybody wants to get me these delightful Hamantashen earrings, they're on moderntribejudaica.com. Um, and I'm really excited to link to them because they're just, I think I have become my mother. I really want these Hamantashen <laughs> earrings. And they look um, delightfully browned on the edges. Like you could tell that this this um earring designer knows exactly when to take things out of the oven so <laughs> <laughs> i'm into it that's amazing next year <laughs> yes uh okay Zahava, what have you got to endorse this month okay so um 
this is one more serious and one more silly, but both hopefully fun. Um, so on the serious side, I want to put in a plug for International Women's Talmud Day. Um, this is the brainchild of my friend Shana. Hey, Shana. Um, and it is uh, going to be its second year on May 19th of this year, 2019, so second annual. Um, it is co-sponsored by JOFA, the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance, and by Yeshivat Maharat. Um, and the premise is there are especially in the Orthodox world, many women who have studied Talmud or want to, but um, often they're, uh, they, but Talmud-oriented ladies often find themselves the only one in the room um, in Orthodox communities, that they're uh, not few and far, they're not few, but they are far between, if that makes sense. Um, and that this provides an opportunity to, um, organize events in your community, organize a sheer, a class that might not otherwise exist on that day. Um, there are great resources where they can provide source sheets if you've never taught a class like this before. Um, there is a international uh, seum, like a sign up for women uh, around the world to participate in a common learning of tractate psachim. Um, so it's a really cool concept. Um, and so just a plug for looking up International Women's Talmud Day, seeing if there's an event near you. And if not, maybe thinking about starting one, you've got a couple months. Um, and then on the sillier side, um, I told you guys that I had just finished watching The Kaminsky Method on Netflix. Um, so this is um, very Jewish in some ways, but without enough actual Jewish content for us to discuss it in substance on the podcast. So I'm just going to say this is like a fun show about two crotchety old Jewish guys um, who are like getting old in a hilarious way. Um, one of whom is an aging acting coach. One of whom is his agent played by Michael Douglas and Alan Arkin. Um, and Alan Arkin is hilarious, especially hilarious in this show. Um, there is also a, the most Jewish setting on the show is that uh, there is a hilarious funeral, not a phrase I use that often, um, which takes place in what looks like an actual shul. And one thing I noted, I don't know how many of the Netflix viewers noted this, is that the decor of the shul unusually, like b behind the main lectern, there is a backdrop that seems to list not the Ten Commandments or something conventional like that, but the Zvarim She'en Lahem Shior, the like the the list of things in the Mishnah that like you can do unlimitedly in the sense of them having unlimited reward, both in this life and the afterlife. Um, it seems like there's a list of that on the shul wall, which was <laughs> like just not what I was expecting to see on Netflix. Anyway, it's a really fun show. Um, and I would say that Judaism is, is very much backdrop, not so, not so foregrounded, but it's a lot of fun. That sounds, that sounds great. Um, Okay, so I also have a um, a serious and a silly uh, endorsement. So my serious endorsement is a book. It's a graphic novel called Belonging, A German Reckons with History and Home by Nora Krug. Um, and it is a story about a German woman who uh, has moved to New York and is actually married to somebody who's Jewish and is just really starting to 
um, grapple with her family's history with the Nazis. Um, and I think like I've heard hundreds of stories of um, German and um, Austrian Jews kind of thinking about what it was like what their experiences were like uh, around the Holocaust, but really not um, the German side of it. And it's really, really interesting and beautifully done. Um, it's a graphic novel, so it's it goes really quickly, and I really recommend it. Um, my second endorsement is funny because um, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was talking about this book that was so great and she really recommended me recommended it and she said that it has kind of a holocaust storyline and also it's about Bach and um she told me the name of it and I couldn't remember I couldn't keep the name in my head but I remembered that she said that it was by Lori Frankel so I went to the library and I got this latest book and when I saw the book which is called this is how it always is I was like great that I remember that being the name awesome so I get the book and I start reading the book and the book is about a family with five sons in Madison, Wisconsin, and the youngest son um, turns out to be transgender. And I'm reading this book and I'm like, it just, like, where is Bach? <laughs> I don't see the Holocaust coming in. Like, what? <laughs> this is like 100 pages into it. Neither the Holocaust nor Bach has come up at all. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? So I saw her in shul and I was like, Miriam, what? didn't you recommend this book to me about Bach and the Holocaust? And wasn't it by Lori Frankel? And she was like, that is two different books. <laughs> she had recommended the Lori Frankel book to me, and she'd also recommended a book, which I have not read, but I do have the from the library, um, that is about Bach and the Holocaust. And they were not the same books. So, <laughs> so... I haven't read the Bach one yet, but I have read This Is How It Always Is by Lori Frankel. And it doesn't have, I don't think the family is Jewish in it. It really has no Jewish content, but it does relate to our first conversation very, um, very closely. It's about a family with a trans child. Um, and uh, much of the book is about the family trying to figure out like at what point they're going to um, come out about this child to their community um and it's really really well done so um i recommend the book and just know that it's it's not about bach <laughs> so, <laughs> um so i mean i know most people don't assume that most things are about bach, but i really <laughs> thought this was going to be about bach <laughs> i just kept waiting for there to be like and this child was super into bach <laughs> and it <just> did not <laughs> happen <laughs> never got there yeah no <laughs> all right well thank you so much for listening if you have a minute it would be really awesome if you could leave us a review um and let us know what you thought of this episode you could also um let us know what you would like to see on future episodes you can leave a comment on a post on our facebook page you should search for jewish public media to find our facebook page um or you could go to our website jpmedia.co for uh, search for talking and show and leave a comment there you can also donate to jewish public media at jpmedia.co and that is a really great way of making sure that we can continue to bring the show to you every month thank you so much mimi thanks guys thank you zahava thank you and we will see you all next month